0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5 will be our text this morning. Chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. These three chapters that uh, make up the Sermon on the Mount. began the study last week and got a good jump on it, at least as far as the, uh, the Beatitudes are concerned. We'll uh, be back in the text again here this morning. Before we do, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our thinking. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come humbly before the throne of grace this morning and thank you for the privilege of assembling together Thankful for the teaching of your word. Thankful for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Rejoicing, Father, to um, appreciate that your ministry is not dependent upon the human beings involved. But, Father, only only a perfect God with a perfect plan functioning in such a perfect way could accomplish perfect results, even uh, in the process of utilizing such imperfect people. We thank you for bringing this plan about. We thank you that you are dedicated not to uh, glorifying us, but to glorifying your son and allowing us to be a part of that process. We just simply thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. To the, uh, as I mentioned, Matthew 5, 6 and 7 are the primary texts. Matthew 5, 1 through seven twenty There is a parallel in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. Obviously, that's much shorter. That's simply a 20 verse uh, portion that are a 30 verse portion uh, of what is given greater consideration in the gospel of Matthew. We noted how you could consider the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of discourse. And our sub and our main point one, we highlighted the five great discourses in the gospel of Matthew. And I'll just put them back up there again for you to take a look at. The Sermon on the Mount is the very first of those from chapter 5 through chapter 7. Then there's a discourse uh, that some have titled Mission of the Disciples. Others have titled it something else. Uh, it has a variety of names, but it begins in Matthew 9:35 and goes down through 10:42. Some would not begin it until chapter 10 in verse 1. I pointed out last week why it is that I prefer to back it up into the context of chapter 9 in order to uh, communicate the, uh, the entire message there. Uh, thirdly, the parables of the kingdom, that's an obvious one the, the great parables of Matthew chapter 13 and one that we will take some time to deal with. Uh, I didn't scan ahead to see where that comes up. It is, uh, in the, uh, Galilean ministry, unless I'm sadly mistaken. And so, uh, yeah, it's coming up in, uh, episode number 27. So we're about 10, uh, 10 points away from that. Uh, but important for us to go through, and hopefully if we do our homework well enough here in the Sermon on the Mount, then we're going to do ourselves huge favors down the road because the confusion arises when believers try to thrust the church into everything, especially into the Sermon on the Mount or into those Matthew 13 parables. Let's stop and remind ourselves that the church is a mystery. It is a mystery throughout the Old Testament. It is a mystery throughout the Gospels. And so uh, we, if we... Uh, plunge the church and all these things as a primary text we're in, in for a whole lot of trouble the church will have secondary application no question because the elements that are common to the church that are common to the kingdom are undeniable but those are only common elements they are not identical features and we want to make sure uh, that we are separated on that so uh, if we do our homework right in this event in the sermon on the mount uh, we will do much better in uh, B, C, D, and e there uh, for the parables of the kingdom. The fourth is the parables of discipleship in Matthew 18. Again, principles that we can glean as a secondary application, certainly. Um, we are disciples. We are commanded to be disciples of Jesus Christ in our particular church age, but that is not a church age text we're dealing with here, and we want to understand that appropriately. And then finally, the Mount Olivet Discourse. Um the disciples want to know what are the signs of your coming and the end of the age. And believers today get all confused because they want to get wrapped up in, in the Mount Olivet discourse as if somehow that pertained to the church. It does not. There are no signs for the rapture. Those are signs and indications of the end of the age. What age is that? The Jewish age, the age that currently today in 2006 A.D. is presently on hold. The plan and program for Israel is presently on hold due to that partial hardening in the father's plan in putting together the church once the church is raptured that plan will resume there is at least one week of judgment remaining upon the nation of israel and then there's a thousand years of blessing remaining for the nation of israel that we call the great tribulation the great uh millennial reign of jesus christ so there are the five discourses in matthew as you might imagine they're very jewish they're very uh, oriented towards israel matthew is beyond being the gospel of the king the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of discourse you can think of matthew as the gospel of uh, extreme jewishness towards the jewish people very jewish as uh, arnold fruchtenbaum pointed out in his testimony as part of how he got saved how he came to uh, even though he was born and raised as a Jew, he started reading the Gospel of Matthew, and the very first sentence began with the generations of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he was struck by how Jewish the uh, Christian Bible really was. Now, the context for the audience for this sermon is primarily his disciples, but with the crowds also in audience. And if we, uh, we get those glimpses from chapter 5 and verse 1, that uh, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And all those others that were present had at least enough positive volition to climb to the top of a mountain to hear the message, all right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, within cities and within public arenas and, and places of convenience nearby, uh, such as the shore of a lake or other such places where the people would be expected to be there anyway. And so a lot of times the crowds that gather there are simply there for the uh the spectacle they're there for just the uh entertainment value something weirds happening so hey go take a look at it you know part of the crowds that you know UT wins a football game so you're going to drive past the the tower to see if it's lit orange and whatever and you're out there with 5000 other idiots that are driving past to see if the tower's lit orange and so forth in other words they're just kind of there because it's convenient why not check it out as a spectacle but here on top of the mountain, the people that are there didn't just happen to be there. They weren't passing by. They weren't just checking out a spectacle. They went up there to hear something. And uh, so that becomes different. And, and they're uh, really struck by what they did here at the end of chapter 7. They heard something they never heard before. And that was power, authoritative power in the teaching. And it has nothing to do with the delivery style of the speaker. It has nothing to do with whether the, the, the human being has a more forceful voice or a deeper voice or some more uh, dramatic flair as he presents it. It has everything to do with the authority or the power that's present in a message and something that Jesus Christ demonstrated, but it's also something that the church manifests because we'll be looking very quickly into the doctrine of spiritual gifts. Uh, it's divine empowerment when ministers of the word of God are communicating in that manner. So we read in chapter seven and verse twenty eight, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as one of their scribes. It's amazing how uh, artificially humanly controlling legalism can be. But at the same time, how impotent there's no power in legalism. There's no power in law. But grace has an amazing power beyond anything you can even dream about. So much so that it is one element of God's plan that the adversary cannot counterfeit. He cannot counterfeit grace. So all he can do is substitute legalism for it and try to counteract it. He cannot come up with a cosmos equivalent of grace. There's no such thing. It is a power beyond even the adversary's ability to uh, to counterfeit and to uh, to mimic. So Jesus primarily taught his disciples, but the crowds, plural, were also in audience. Passing by some of the vocabulary this morning. Thirdly, the Lord began his sermon with the Beatitudes. And then uh, he will follow that with the similitudes. We'll get to that here under point four. But this is where we left off the Beatitudes, the blessed ours, blessed ours. And so let's go through it again. We're kind of trapped with the word blessed, and I find that most unfortunate. Um, even in, in modern English translations, passages that are highly poetic, passages that are very uh, much written into a, uh, into a, almost a liturgical sense, passages where you know scripture reading comes into places like this, Psalm 23, other places uh, that are so ingrained in the uh, into the, the the vocabulary and the culture and the uh, scope of the church. They just hold on to them, see, and even uh, passages with these and thous and so forth. A lot of those are retained even by modern English text simply because they're they are so uh, ingrained. And uh, I think this is one of those passages. It's a holdover from King James, uh, the King James Version. It is unfortunate because I think it, it confuses the issues between Makarios and Eulogetos. And I think that a better rendering of Makarios is happy rather than blessed. And that uh, if we consistently render our makarios uh, terms as happy and we consistently render our eulogatos terminology as blessed, I think that uh, we would be much better edified. So as we read through here, we read happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what's being communicated here is a message that is centered on the kingdom of heaven. Under sub-point A, the Beatitudes are centered on the kingdom of heaven. And I won't take the time to survey chapters 1 through 4 like I did last week. But if you just simply survey those chapters and lead immediately into chapter 5, you'll realize that the emphasis that that, uh, Matthew is placing in this book is on the kingdom. And there's a reason why he goes from the baptism to the temptation to the Sermon on the Mount almost immediately, bing, bang, boom, and here we are in whatever this is. This is uh, life of Christ lesson. Uh, lesson is this 98 this morning. All right. And, and we, we understand but because we've been going through this chronologically and sequentially and bringing up all the gospel accounts, including John at the various Passover feasts and, and the, the fuller details on the uh, Galilean ministry and so forth. That's not Matthew's impact. That's not his priority. Matthew will get to some of those in uh, later chapters. The Galilean ministry featured in chapter 8, 9, 11, and 12, and so forth. But um, in, in the presentation, he front loads the Sermon on the Mount to chapters 5, 6, and 7. Immediately after chapter 4, the temptation in the wilderness and, the, and the, uh, the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3 and the temptation in chapter 4, and then launching right on into the Sermon on the Mount here in 5, 6, and 7. So it is centered on the kingdom of heaven. And if we don't keep the kingdom of heaven in our thinking, we'll misapply this. And it has to be the kingdom of heaven as expected by the Jewish people, as revealed by the, new te- by the Old Testament. Do not try to import uh, concepts or doctrines or principles from the epistles, from uh, Revelation. You can't do that. That's not fair to the text of Matthew. None of that was written yet. That was all still in mystery form. The church was not yet revealed. This is the kingdom of heaven as given to the Jewish people as a promise and as revealed in the Jewish scriptures. So they are descriptive of the comfort and mercy believers will receive after the tribulation when the earth is inherited at the beginning of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, stop to think, how many funerals have you gone to in the last uh, month, in the last year, in the last five years? All right. A few, perhaps. I imagine that intensifies as as you get older and more and more of your friends and so forth. But try to imagine during the tribulation when a third of the earth is killed in a single judgment of divine wrath. And then another third of those two-thirds that remain are killed in another single event of divine wrath. And then another third of the earth of the two-thirds of the two-thirds that are still alive on the planet are killed in a single application of divine wrath. There's going to be a lot of funerals. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of mourning and a lot of uh, grieving. Grieving particularly by those who are born again during the tribulational age and who are observing their loved ones departing uh, without Christ, without hope and without eternal life. And yet, where is their happiness going to come from? Their happiness is going to come from from the assurance of God's word in knowing that those who endure to the end will indeed be delivered, that Jesus Christ is on the way. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. See, the time for the earth's inheritance, the time for the distribution of all land grants, Jewish land grants and Gentile land grants will take place when Jesus Christ initiates his kingdom. The inauguration address of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem will inherit or will distribute that inheritance. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You might have earthly hunger. You might have uh, physical health Conditions You might have other things going on in temporal life that would not produce temporal happiness. But none of that matters because you have a spiritual life that's feeding and feasting on the word of God. And it is finding spiritual satisfaction no matter what else is going on. See, as Colonel Thiem taught that the mastery of the circumstances and details of life, it doesn't matter what you're facing in the earthly world because we're occupying in the heavenly realm. We're we're fixed our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And it's interesting because all of the expressions of happiness are present, ongoing possessions. They're happy right now. They haven't seen the inheritance unfolded through time yet, but they're certain it's on the way. So they're happy right now. They're happy right now. They haven't received the comfort yet, but they know it's on the way. They're happy right now. They haven't... Uh, uh, receive the ultimate satisfaction yet, but they know what's on the way. They haven't received the, the ultimate mercy yet, but they know what's on the way. So they're happy right now. Do you see the, the present and future, present and future? There's a shift in every single verse. The, the presently happy and here's what they shall be. There's a lot of these shall be, shall be, shall receive, shall inherit. All right, It almost is, a, is an opposite of the Ten Commandments because that was a passage that was totally packed with thou shalt nots. Right. Here's a passage that's just the opposite. It's packed with the thou shalt thou shalt be uh, comforted, thou shalt receive mercy. So we have every single one of these statements of happiness communicates a present ongoing happiness with a view to an imminently arriving provision. And it could be here at any moment. So they shall receive mercy. Bless that. Verse eight. Happy. Are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, if if we try to read this into a church age context, we're left kind of stumped, saying, "Well, big deal. Who cares? Aren't we all sons of God? Why is that a promise?" Well, yeah, we are, as the bride of Christ, as sons of God, with the uh, adoption uh, pursuant to church age realities. But that was not a feature of the Old Testament. That was not a feature of the average Jewish believer on the street to personally address the Father as God, uh, the God as Father. This is a uh, promised blessing for the uh, victory rewards of tribulational saints entering into the millennial kingdom. Happier are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice that's not a future, that is another present that ties in there. Then in verse 11 it switches from the third person, blessed are they, 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 all the way down through verse 10, to blessed are you, in verse 11. That is a significant shift. Now, the very people that are sitting right there on that mountaintop listening to Jesus Christ, those disciples, those apostles, those other crowds, the very ones listening there, they are personally addressed at this moment. Blessed are you. Happy are you. That they, in their day, and their generation, can have the same inner happiness. And that's what it is. It's the mental attitude of happiness, regardless of what the external circumstances are. Happier you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That would certainly become a feature of the apostles in their day. Uh, Likewise, it'll be a feature of the uh, tribulational martyrs. But the focus switched from them to you. So we'll keep the focus there on the apostles themselves. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. See, laying up treasure in heaven is not unique to the church age. Believers from all dispensations, from all times, have been laying up treasures in heaven. Daniel laid up treasures in heaven and and Jesus comforted him and promised him that. Job laid up treasures in heaven. He knew where his Redeemer was coming from, where his reward would be granted from. Rejoice and be glad for your uh, reward in heaven is great. Now notice, rejoice and be glad, those are imperatives. Those are imperatives and they can only be accomplished if that happiness is a reality. You can only rejoice and be glad as activities if the mental attitude of if inner happiness, of makarios happiness, is actually there. If you lose that mental attitude of happiness, if you lose that inner happiness of makarios, you cannot properly rejoice and be glad. can't do it at all. So when you have an imperative later on in the epistles, for example, for church age application that says rejoice always, what do you need to have first before you can do that? You need to have that Macarius attitude of inner happiness. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, there's, all testing is common to man. Whatever you're going through, you're not unique, you're not weird, you're not different. It's not like uh, you're, you're faced with something that nobody else has ever faced before in the history of the angelic conflict. And so God's up there scratching his head looking at you saying, man, you're in a pickle. What am I going to do to get you out of that? Okay. It's nothing that the Lord hasn't seen before. He designed it. He crafted it. He has every aspect of this test already worked out including its conclusion, including every detail along the way. And he's got brothers and sisters in Christ that have gone through it as well. And they're now equipped and prepared to come alongside. And once you've reached the acceptable emphasis instead of coming up with one of your own and forcing your own emphasis. Once you've come up with God's emphasis, you're then equipped to come alongside others when it's their turn. So here are the Beatitudes. Centered on the kingdom of heaven, descriptive of the comfort and mercy believers will receive after the tribulation. B, the shift from they to you highlights the circumstances that these apostles would experience prior to the kingdom of heaven appearing on earth. They are not. There is no present happiness and imminent coming uh, kingdom. It's just simply a present happiness and recognition of the fact that it goes with the territory. The prophets before you had the same thing. You're going to have to face it. Part of the job description of an apostle to be a, a spectacle to the world, to be the dregs of the earth, the scum of the world. All right. Now, here I'll go ahead and bring an epistle, a New Testament passage into focus. You can't force it into the text of of Matthew. But what you can do is recognize how it complements and unfolds what Matthew is talking about. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I know you're all stunned that there actually is a 2 Corinthians. We'll get there. And uh, there are actually there's a number of different passages that describe. And one of them is in first Corinthians, actually, besides there's uh, in second Corinthians 11, there's all the difficulties that that Paul went through, and it just simply goes as a matter of course. It's a part of being an apostle. And uh, and then, of course, that leads into the thorn in the flesh that begins uh, that begins. Chapter 12, the passage I'm thinking of, isn't there? Maybe it's the first Corinthians passage I'm thinking of. And. uh, First Corinthians, chapter four. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. First Corinthians, chapter four. That's right. This is the tongue in cheek passage where Paul is um, praising, quote unquote, he's really mocking the Corinthians for being so uh, uh, charismatic and millennial and they're all. In the, in the rah-rah prosperity theology of uh, bringing in the kingdom and all these other things. And that uh, says in verse 8, You are already filled, you've already become rich, you've become kings without us. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. That's all sarcastic. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. And then back to the sarcasm, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. By, by teaching it this way, with the, the sarcasm as thick as it is, it's driving the point home that they're living a Christian way of life that just doesn't conform to the reality of the way it's supposed to be. They've deluded themselves into this, uh, into this uh, mental attitude. Verse 11 says, to this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world. That's the verse I was thinking of. The dregs of all things, even until now. So that's consistent with the switch from they to you when the Lord switches from a tribulational millennial scope to back to the immediate scope of the people he's looking right at. He says, blessed or happy are you and goes on to describe insults and persecutions and slander and the things that take place. And he does not promise the you that he addresses that uh, that uh, uh, millennium is is going to unfold right before their eyes, because for them, it really isn't rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great that's why they're told to rejoice all right these are the beatitudes they're followed by the similitudes point 4 the beatitudes are followed by the similitudes Matthew 5:13 through 17 a simile or a metaphor is a device of literature that communicates by means of comparison relating People or things to other people or other things, describing them as like or as, or just simply, you are. You are the salt of the earth. Alright? That's a metaphor. You don't, <laughs> you aren't literally, um, sodium of whatever compound. There's lots of varieties of salt out there in the, in the world. You're not literally salt. I suppose biologically, every human being physiologically contains some uh, some quantity of salt. But the metaphor is communicating the reality of our preservative nature. You are the salt of the earth. Our preservative nature and our flavoring. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Now think about tasteless food for a moment. Think about something that's just so utterly blah that it needs help. Okay? And consider this world needing help. <laughs> All right? Consider the, the nature of the church that allows for uh, uh, preservation blessings, that allows for even divine favor to be poured out upon those that uh, would otherwise, the only option available to them would be wrath. Right? I mean, you and I have the option of both favor and wrath. If we're walking in the light, pleasing to the Lord, then the, the conduit is open for blessing, for favor, for goodness and so forth. If we are, under, if we are in carnality, walking in darkness, hardening our heart, that, uh, that evil, unbelieving heart that, that apostatizes from the living God, if we're walking in darkness, then what have we done? We've... Turned off that spigot. We've opened this spigot. Now we've opened the conduit for wrath. We've got the option to either have the conduit of blessing or the conduit of wrath poured out upon us. But the unbeliever doesn't have that option. <laughs> the unbeliever is doing no righteousness. The unbeliever is, uh, is uh, not accomplishing anything that pleases the Lord. Nothing. See, without faith, it's impossible to please him. The unbeliever hasn't come to that process of faith. So... How is it that uh, any divine favor, any blessings, any goodness is poured out? Well, one way you can answer is, well, grace is given even though they don't deserve it. Yeah, that's a good answer. But another way, and what this passage is highlighting, is the blessing by association. The opportunity we have as salt, as a preservative, and as a flavoring that blessings can be poured out upon our community upon our city our state our nation and so forth by virtue of having a a quantity of of believers within a within a uh, particular area think about the uh, the flavoring and the preservative nature that uh, salt uh, communicates problem is though is what happens when the salt has become tasteless Well, then it's worthless. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And we we recognize what happens when a believer has totally abandoned the plan of God. It's called the sin unto death. That salt has become useless. And the Lord takes you out. You've got no more purpose in this world. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Here's another metaphor. All right, you are the light of the world. That is... You are the representatives of Jesus Christ here in this world. He is presently seated at the right hand of God, but working in and through us, we then become the light. Not manifesting our own light, but manifesting his light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In fact, take this back to John chapter one, when it describes the light versus the true light. John the Baptist came as a light, as a witness. Uh, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, John was not the light. He was a forerunner. He was a preview. He was anticipating the coming Christ. You and I, though, we are the light. Because we're not forerunners. We're not heralds. We're not previews. We are testimonies after the fact. United together in Christ, John was not the light, but we are. We are the light, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are the light. You are the light of the world. So, just like uh, we did with salt, you want to examine. Okay, here's it's a metaphor. How do we handle the metaphor? Well, we look at what the characteristics are of that which is being uh, described. Salt. Characteristics being flavor and preservation. Light characteristics being illumination. We recognize what our role is supposed to be. If we don't stand up and testify to the truth, who's going to do it? When this world is promoting its evolution message, who's going to stand up and say, no, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Unbelievers aren't going to do that. It's going to be us. When the world gives this message that, oh, there's many paths to heaven, who's going to stand up and say, no, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? No man cometh unto the Father but through him. Or there's no other name given under heaven, uh, given among men, by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only name, the only, the only uh, provision for righteousness in the sight of God the Father. Who's going to stand up and be that light if we don't do it? Nobody. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And yet we try it constantly. Because we, uh, what are we, ashamed? Paul said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But believers do. Don't want to, you know, do want to let people know that you're a Christian. Don't want to let people know that, you know, you go to church or that you're kind of weird or, you know, they, they think something is wrong with you. So we have all these undercover Christians, you know, and some kind of, top-secret, clandestine, uh, spy kind of service, you know. It's not what we're supposed to be, city set on a hill. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. What would the point of that be? You know, you turn the light on and then you shove it in a drawer or something. Nobody does that. There's no point to doing that. And that's not why God made us lights. He made us lights so that we would shine. Let your light shine in such a way. Oh, there it is. I thought I was going to quote somewhere else. It's right there in my text. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, shining light causes you to be an imitator of Christ and that gives glory to the Father. Because the Father is in the business of magnifying Christ. So when you imitate Christ by letting your light shine, you're glorifying to the Father who designed this plan. Let your light shine. I love... Third-person imperatives. Imperatives that are in the English um, translated with helping words like let. Let your light shine. Let it shine. Because to obey that word, to obey that command, what do you need to do? You need to, in some respects, do nothing. Nothing. You just need to let it happen. okay? To defy that verse, what do you need to do? Well, then you need to do something. You need to do something overt to prohibit this from happening. In other words, you need to hide it under a basket. You need to crawl under that hill. You need to come running down off that hill. You need to do something to prevent this from happening. See, if, uh, if, 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 if I was to give an order... Uh, an imperative to Bob um, to walk up here on the platform and, uh, and let me punch him in the nose. Okay? If Bob was up here on this platform and I gave him the command let me punch you in the nose what does he have to do to obey that? Nothing. He just has to stand there and get punched. Stand there and let it happen. Okay? Now he can disobey that command by You know, blocking, putting his arms up, blocking the punch, or running off the platform, or or punching me in the nose first, right? You know, knocking me out so I can't hit him. Whatever. There's lots of things he could do to prevent that from happening, but in order to obey the command to let it happen, what does he have to do? Nothing. He just has to let it happen. And so when it says, let your light shine, we've got to stop to recognize, you are light not something you did. It's something God did to you. Made you. Your light is shining. Again, it's not something you did. God did that to you. God did that to your light. God, when He placed you in His Son, that is a function of being in Christ. We are now light in Christ. Shining light in Christ. And so we don't have to do anything to to shine it already does that we just have to prevent it from not shining so that means we're not running off the hill or climbing under the hill or hiding under a basket or or plunging ourselves into the darkness of carnality to extinguish that light see and you plunge yourself in the darkness of carnality what are you doing All right. And notice, by the way, when you live your Christian way of life, you don't get the glory. The father does. That's what this verse is all about. When you let your light shine in such a way, you don't get celebrated like, ooh, look at me. I'm walking in the light. I'm wonderful. I'm doing all this great stuff. Ha ha ha. No. All you're doing is not dampening the light, not quenching the spirit, not hindering God's plan. God's the one that's working and God gets the glory. You didn't make yourself into a light any more than you could have saved yourself. So living the Christian way of life does not promote personal glory. Glorifies the Father. So point A, salt represents the ministry of believers in temporal life as a seasoning and preservative element in society. I've already mentioned these principles, but haven't given you the points yet to write down. So point A, salt represents the ministry of believers in temporal life as a seasoning and preservative element in society. It's remarkable. At various times in um, the workplace, for example, we'd have three shifts in the jail. An A shift, a B shift, and a C shift. I was habitually on the C shift, the graveyard, 11 to 7, because um, I loved it. That was, that was perfect for study time. And it, it worked well with working at night and studying and, and then pastoring during the day. Um, so I'm constantly on the night shift. But there were things that were observed by others, for example, uh, where we'd have fewer incidents fewer fights among the inmates, fewer uh, any number of difficulties and other things. And at one point, it was recognized that out of a, a shift of 20 officers, six of us were born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And on those other shifts, such things couldn't be said. Now, do we get all weird and, and charismatic and start preaching at everybody else and saying you need Jesus and, and you know we're a, we're a better shift because we've got these believers and I mean it really wasn't all that great six out of twenty is not a lot but it's noticeable the fact that you've got five other people you can talk to about scripture and different things they didn't even have that on those shifts so think about the blessings by association if there's one shift like that out of the three which one do you think is going to be blessed by association see you know, we still had our things and they did come up as we're fallen creatures in a fallen world. But what I'm saying is that there's a noticeable benefit. And you will notice that as well in your workplace. If you start to find that there's more and more believers around, that you have encouragement for one another. And even if other things are all falling apart, at least you can have fellowship over the things of the, of the Lord and maintain the, the makarios mental attitude with one another. So that can take place in a family. It can take place in a workplace. It can take place in a, in a, in a neighborhood, in a community. Neighborhoods that, uh, that are relatively uh, crime-free. They're protected from vandalism and protected from other violent crimes and so forth. Now, every neighborhood has some kind of crime taking place. But some are obviously a lot worse than others. Stop to consider if there is a salt Preservative effect that's taking place and be in prayer for that salt preservative taking place. Recognize that it's there and pray that it might continue. Light represents the ministry of believers as spiritual life witnesses to God's work in and through us. Light represents the ministry of believers as spiritual life witnesses to God's work in and through us. See, these two metaphors, one is oriented to temporal life, one is oriented to spiritual life. Salt in temporal terms, light in spiritual terms, due to the revealing nature, the illumination, illuminative nature of light. Light represents the ministry of believers as spiritual life witnesses to God's work in and through us. They may see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now your good works clearly are going to play themselves out in temporal life. But they're reflecting the truth of your spiritual life. See, that's why the Father gets the glory. So these are the similitudes ready to click Got that written down light represents the ministry of believers as spiritual life witnesses to god's work in and through us see we're not the ones doing the work anyway whatever good works we have they may see your good works well are you the one that did those philippians says it's your father who's at work in and through you for his good pleasure you simply let it happen by not uh, quenching the Spirit, by not defying the Father's will, by not uh, departing from God's will into your own will. That's called carnality. Alright, point five. Jesus gave the longest portion of the sermon as an explanation of how the Old Testament will be applied in the kingdom. Jesus gave the longest portion of the sermon. It's verses 17 through 46. It's the longest single section of this three-chapter sermon. Jesus gave the longest portion of the sermon as an explanation of how the Old Testament will be applied in the kingdom. Now, that's a bit misleading because I'm using a church-age term. Old Testament is a church-age term. At the point of time Jesus was teaching, it was called... What was it called? It's called the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it was the word of God, Genesis to Malachi, the word of God. Sometimes it was just simply called the law, even though it comprised of the law, the writings and the prophets. The shorter term for it was just simply the law. All right. And what happens here is we have a series of of uh, messages that then really amplifies what law was all about because we have a series of messages you have heard but I say to you okay you have heard that uh, adultery is a sin but I say to you and he intensifies it you have heard thou shalt not murder but I say to you and it gets intensified it goes back to that he he brings in and applies the mental attitude behind each of these overt sins and so it begins in verse 17. It goes on down through verse 46. And as a part of the kingdom of heaven is at hand message. As a part of repent for the kingdom is at hand warning. The teaching that comes across as far as what will be expected of them in the kingdom. Could be uh, rather startling to say the least. I mean, stop to consider that now, ever since Moses, for 1,400 years now, they've been under law, they've been trying to measure up, and no one has done it yet. Jesus Christ will, but He's the only one. Alright? No one has done it yet. They could not keep all 612 commandments of the Mosaic Code. They couldn't even keep all the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. Adam and Eve couldn't even keep the one commandment that they had in the Garden of Eden. Alright? So, when he comes along and he magnifies law to such an extent that you are guilty not only on the basis of what you do, but also on the basis of what you think, now who's going to keep it? Anyone? <laughs> Anyone? Well, Jesus Christ did totally fulfilled the law, not only in deed, but also in thought. All right. There's a lot we want to glean under this. And uh, in our time remaining, we'll do the best we can. Let's glimpse at it here. Let's read through, starting with verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And uh, I believe... I I failed to put the uh, vocabulary here on abolishment. But we're going to have some concepts in basics when we talk about spiritual gifts. And we're going to have to recognize why it is that certain gifts were abolished. Why it is we don't have uh, prophets today. Because that gift has been abolished. Or apostles today. Or miracles. Okay? So keep abolishment in mind. But the Lord, in this passage, he's not talking about abolishment I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. To bring to a perfection. To bring to a completion. That also will be a concept in terms of our spiritual gifts. Because when the perfect comes, the completion arrives, the partial will be abolished. And so... As a matter of imagery and concepts, there's a lot of things we have coming up in spiritual gifts that uh, a study here, it's an unrelated study, but the the themes and the concepts are in, uh, in an interesting parallel. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished, perfected, fulfilled, completed. All right. Now this at first glance appears to be a, a never and forever concept, but it's not, because we know what do we know? Heaven and earth will pass away. Right? That's going to happen. There will be new heavens and a new earth, and that's not simply the book of Revelation in the New Testament telling us that or Second Peter telling us that. They had that in Isaiah. So the Jewish people understood from an old testament prophetic standpoint that these heavens and earth are gonna be gone. They will pass away. New heavens, new earth being created. Everlasting righteousness. And uh, so, a statement that uh, that the the law will endure until then would be understood in that context. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, there's a difference between annulling and completing. All right. A lot of times that gets confused. We have. We're not under Mosaic law. It's not because it's been annulled. It's because it's been completed. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. See, the remarkable thing is is this is what they convicted him of. This is how they put him on the cross. This was the charge. This was the indictment. And this was the conviction in the minds of the Pharisees. That he was defying Moses. That he was teaching the annulment of Mosaic law. And he comes right out and says, this is not what I'm teaching. This is not what I'm doing. And anyone who does will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot with respect to this, but we're going to get into the details here in a moment, but recognize a couple of things first of all. It's still like the like the Beatitudes, like the similitudes, when we get into this passage, the focus is still what? The kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom passage. And as such, it is not a church passage. We will only draw application on those points in which the Ecclesia finds a common aspect with the kingdom of god all right because the church is not the kingdom of god we're in the kingdom we're a part of the kingdom we actually have privileges and blessings now even though the kingdom has not yet been unfolded on the earth see the kingdom of heaven is not yet on the earth it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now our king's in heaven. The kingdom hasn't gotten here yet because the king hasn't gotten here yet. The kingdom hasn't been established yet because the times of the Gentiles is not yet complete. That stone fashioned without hands is going to come down and smash the feet of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. That hasn't happened yet. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it's not here yet. It's not yet now. The only way that you and I can touch upon those aspects of kingdom blessing is the fact that you and I are not limited to this earth right here, right now. We have access to the heavenly throne. We function in the heavenly places. We have a citizenship that's in heaven. We partake of a heavenly economy. We lay up our treasures in heaven. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. So insofar that you and I already, even now today, function in the third heaven, there we can touch upon kingdom blessings We want to be very cautious that we're not interchanging the church with Israel. We're not interchanging the church with the kingdom of heaven. We are not the kingdom of heaven. We will be the bride of the king when the kingdom of heaven is unfolded upon this earth. But we are not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom will have a king. It will have a bride. It will have subjects and it will have subject nations. Uh, Israel being the subjects of the kingdom and Gentiles being the subject nations, subject to the subjects of the kingdom. If you're going to try to turn the church into the kingdom, well, you're in trouble. First of all, it's a Roman theology that then was adopted into so many of the Reformed churches. All right. The Reformation fixed the, the salvation questions in, in uh, terms of salvation by grace through faith, but the Reformation did not fix uh, the eschatological issues that Rome viewed themselves as the kingdom of heaven. The the Reformation largely accepted that, adopted that, brought that into their own thinking. Now, yeah, they had their own forms of it. They didn't acknowledge papal supremacy, but they still view the church as the kingdom of heaven. And that's a mistake. All right. Does that shock anybody? See, a lot of folks look to the Reformation that they fixed everything. No. They fixed the soteriological issues, saved by grace through faith. They did not fix eschatological issues and a lot of other issues they didn't fix, by the way. All right. The work assignment of Jesus Christ in his first and second advents, keep in mind this passage blends first and second advent like so many Old Testament prophecies did. Because kingdom of heaven's at hand. Theoretically, in a potential volitional alternate universe, uh, Israel could have accepted their king and the kingdom of heaven could have begun immediately. See, they don't know that they're going to reject their king and crucify him and that he's going to depart to the Father's side and that 2,000 years and more will go by until the second advent and the the kingdom is established. We've got to separate our, our church perspective from this. They've been anticipating a king. The forerunner announced the king. The king steps forward. The king gives his State of the Union address like we had last night. This is his State of the Union address. As far as proclaiming the kingdom of heaven at hand and the features that are about to be unfolded. The work assignment of Jesus Christ in his first and second advents was not and will not be. Was not for first advent, will not be for second advent was not and will not be to abolish the law or the message of the prophets. The use of law and prophets communicates the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament. There's a longer form of it that's the law and the writings and the prophets that, that constitutes the what we call today the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. Sometimes it's, it's, it's drawn out to be called the law the writings and the prophets. Sometimes it's shortened to just simply the law and the prophets, but it still communicates Genesis to Malachi, the completed canon of the Old Testament. Or sometimes it's even shorter than that. Sometimes it's just called the law. Even passages from Isaiah and prophetic books are uh, are called the law. That's a shorter form for the Bible. He's not doing away with the Bible. He's not doing away with the Old Testament, but he's fulfilling the Old Testament. See, the problem with these other so-called revelations they're flawed like the Quran like the Book of Mormon like all these other uh, Mary Baker Eddy and her science and health with the key to the scriptures or like any of these other things the Watchtower Tract Society and all these other things what they do is they purport to come out with brand new revelation for the latter days alright and they abolish previous revelations see Abrogation, if you listen to Dr. Caner, he talks about how so often the Quran abrogates what was previously given. And uh, likewise, in, in, in the Book of Mormon, it has to absolutely scrap wholesale portions of the Scripture to validate itself. All false revelations will do that. New Testament didn't do that. The New Testament didn't come along and say, all right, scrap everything I said in the Old Testament. I'm starting over with the church didn't do that at all it said all right accept everything that was in the old testament now add to it this material from the new testament synthesize them together into a non-contradictory whole message and you'll realize that there is an eternal plan for israel there is an eternal plan for the church old testament was not going to be abolished but fulfilled very important um Point B, the passing of the law will occur with the passing away of heaven and earth. The passing of the law will occur with the passing away of heaven and earth. It's promised here. It's promised in Matthew 24, 35 in the Mount Olivet Discourse. And it's also there is a related feature within the book of Hebrews that shows that even prior to it passing away, Elements of it are obsolete. Not only do we have Matthew five and verse seventeen, but we have them out all of it discourse in Matthew twenty four thirty five. This is uh, they asked him uh what would be the Uh, When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They don't ask about the church age. They don't have a clue. The church age is even on the way. They're asking the end of the age, that being the end of the Jewish age. That is the time when the uh, kingdom will come down from heaven and smash Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And so he tells them, has a lot of answers. Beware. There'll be false cries, false messages. Uh, there's a coming abomination of desolation in verse 15. I uh, should have included that in the milestone passages we taught when we were giving the plan of God. This That is a tremendous milestone passage. That verse all by itself tells you that Jesus Christ, in his day, in 33 A.D., viewed Daniel's abomination of desolation prophecy as being a future unfulfilled event. Because there are so many... Blithering idiot theologians out there that say that that was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes in the third century B.C. Well, how bright is that idea when Jesus Christ said, no, that hasn't happened yet. When that happens, you'll be warned. Get out of town and hopefully uh, you won't be pregnant because. uh, You don't run very fast when you're with child. All right. Sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, powers of the heavens will be shaken. Can you imagine you walk out and you look up and all the stars are gone. <laughs> makes for a pretty dark night, doesn't it? I mean, imagine how dark the night is when it 's cloudy, and the stars are, are simply obscured, and the moon is obscured. Well, think about how dark it'll be when the stars are not just obscured, they're gone. Yeah, that'll spark some fear. Uh, Anyway, this is clearly this is end times. And the other things that happen here. The parable of the fig tree says in verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. So you, too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Until all these things take place. What does he mean by this generation? not talking about the generation of the apostles that were sitting there listening to him. He was talking about this generation, the one that sees the uh, signs, the one that sees the sun and the moon darkened, the one that sees the great tribulation that's unique upon the earth, the, the, the generation that sees Antichrist. That's going to be the generation that sees the deliverance. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Yes, heaven and earth will pass away. Isaiah taught that 700 years ago. Christ reinforces that. Peter will teach it and uh, John will teach it in uh, their own New Testament writings. But look what it says in Hebrews 8. Even beyond passing away and I'm going long this morning. What am I doing? Even besides being fulfilled and besides passing away, there is something else that can take place with respect to uh the law with respect to teaching is it can be fulfilled it can be completed it can be abolished which it will be after the heavens and earth are abolished but it will it can also be made obsolete hebrews 8 verse 13 when he said a new covenant he has made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear See, the uh, burnt offerings, the sin offering, the trespass offering, they're obsolete. Why? Because they were fulfilled in the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world, hung upon the cross. They're obsolete, ready to disappear. Okay, uh, I went a little long, hated to leave there. Awkward spot. We'll come back to this next week, Lord willing, and pick up this theme that uh, we'll continue to recognize what Jesus is doing with the law and what the feature of the law is going to be in the millennium. There will be law in the millennium, kingdom law, in the millennial reign. And we're going to struggle, maybe, because we're church-age saints, not under law but under grace. And we'll say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean there's no more grace in the millennium? Does that mean that grace is complete and now it's back to law again? Yes and no, but it's going to be kingdom law. It's going to be kingdom law with grace injected, and that will be fun to look at. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we study. And Father, uh, we're told to be diligent, because these things aren't necessarily easy to figure out. They're not just automatic and simple for baby Christians to just grab onto. We're supposed to be diligent to show ourselves approved as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, give us that diligence. Give us the heart to study these details, to learn and to grow. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.